Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. Once again, we're looking at two books in the Old Testament, Obadiah and Jonah, two quite short books. Uh, Is there a connection between them, Mike? Well, I think the thing that connects both of them is that both were prophets two or four other nations, whereas the ones we've looked at so far were prophets who were bringing God's word to either Israel or Judah themselves. Obadiah is a prophet who lives in Judah, but his word is addressed to the nation of Edom in its entirety, only 21 verses, but it's all about Edom. And Jonah is a prophet who's sent to Assyria, to the great city of Nineveh. So there's our link. They're, they're both prophets who are bringing God's word either about or to other nations. So you said this short book of Obadiah is a message from Obadiah in Judah to the people of Edom. Now, now where is Edom? Yeah, well, Edom lay to the, the south of the Dead Sea. And the Edomites were actually, well, they were related to um, Israel, really. They were descended from Esau who was Jacob's brother, those patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And of course, Israel was descended from there. Esau's other name was Edom, which meant red. And that went back to the uh, the incident of the red stew that he'd made. So these were descendants of Esau and therefore sort of extended family. And they lived in that mountain region south of the Dead Sea, through which a really important trade route, the King's Highway, passed. So it it was quite a significant area. And despite their family links with Israel, they had refused to let Israel pass through their land when they were on their way from Egypt, where they had been released from slavery under the leadership of Moses, and they were on their way to the Promised Land, And when they reached Edom in Numbers 20, the Edomites wouldn't let them pass, even though they said, look, you know, we'll pay you for your water. We'll pay for anything we take and use. And they said, no, in fact, they turned their army out to stop them. And so rather than fight extended family, Israel had added this long detour around Edom. So, you know, there were frequent skirmishes and and not a little uh, hostility between the two branches of the extended family here. I mean, how long ago were we talking about that that happened? Because you would have thought, you know, let bygones be bygones. <laughs> we are talking hundreds of years, literally hundreds of years. It's not far short of a thousand years, actually, because if the Israelites crossed the Red Sea in the traditional date is sort of 1446 BC and Obadiah there's a reference in in the book here to uh, what could possibly be the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people in 586 BC. So, you know, you're talking 900 years or so there. So, you know, this goes back a, a long, long way, this hostility between them. But hey, we've seen that in our own time, in our own generation, haven't we? Uh, even within our own nation, how people can have very long memories about long-standing issues that you would really have thought, Oh, for goodness sake, is it not time to put that behind us? But the hostility between these two was continuing and it gets expressed in Obadiah because 
some event that had happened that we're not told exactly what it was, the Edomites have really been gloating over what has happened to God's people. There's a reference in verse 11 to Edom standing aloof while strangers carried off Jerusalem's wealth and, and to foreigners entering its gates. Now that sounds like it refers to the destruction of Jerusalem and the treasures being taken away uh, and the exile in, in 586 BC, which would make him a, a contemporary of Jeremiah. And when that had happened, Edom had gloated over it. They, they'd been glad about it. Uh, they had stood aloof is one of the phrases that he uses here, thinking, yeah, they deserve that, didn't they? So this long-standing hostility had uh, had come to the surface again. So it was family rivalry, really? Well, it was. I mean, it was it was extended family rivalry, but it, it, it was. It's funny, isn't it, how I mean, rivalry is a weird thing because rivalry doesn't just like want good for you. It wants bad for the other person. You know, and I'm not content until not only am I knowing I'm doing well, but I know that you're doing bad. And yeah, I'm sure, you know, many of us can recognize that. Maybe we've even felt like that ourselves at times. And that that's certainly uh, the scenario here. Obadiah has this word to Edom in, in uh, verse 12. He says, you should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You shouldn't march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You shouldn't wait at the crossroads to cut them down. I don't know if you noticed there, but there's like a progression in the imagery there, it, it starts out with just looking down on someone and then the next step, the next word was rejoicing over them when things had gone wrong and then the next step was boasting that they were in trouble and you weren't and then the fourth step was metaphorically marching through their gates, making the most of this and the fifth step even waiting at the crossroads to hack down their fugitives. And, and I think this is a warning to all of us to, hey, be careful not to let old jealousies, old rivalries root and fester there, root them out. Because if not, it's this sort of progression that leads us to end up having this sort of attitude that Edom had had towards Judah at its time of distress. And God sees that. Uh, he goes on to say in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near. And we've seen that many times in previous episodes, that day of God's intervention when he comes to act on behalf of his people. He says, the day of the Lord is near for all nations. This is not just for the bad folk, for everybody but me. It's for all nations. And then this line, as you have done, it will be done to you. So there's the word to Edom. You might be gloating at the moment, thinking you have done well. You have escaped what has happened to Judah. But they'll get their comeuppance. Oh, you will get your comeuppance without a doubt. And in that, of course, there's a biblical principle. Whatever a man sows, he reaps. We might say what 
goes round, comes round. But, you know, there's a challenge here to us. But you know what? If I just flip that round for a moment, I think there's almost an encouragement to us as well, because I'm sure all of us at times must have had those moments in our life when we thought, why do the wicked prosper? <laughs> why do bad people get away with what they are doing? Why do they seem to have apparent success? Because this is what it looked like here. Judah, God's people, being looked down on and mocked by Edom. You know, why, why are they getting away with it, God? And I, I'm sure all of us have had those times. And the message of Obadiah is that God sees everything. And it's just an issue of timing. And yes, at the moment, it might look like they've got away with it. But, but just give it time. So it challenges us really to have sort of God's perspective on things. And to trust that God, as the righteous judge, is well able to bring his judgment. But it, it's always at the right time and at his time, not at ours. I'm still slightly stuck on the fact that this is family. You know, they were family. Yeah. And I'm sort of remembering back in Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, when sin got in, in the Garden of Eden, it started to spread. It's what we see in those early chapters of Genesis, just one simple act of disobedience, eating a fruit they weren't supposed to suddenly spreads and it spreads through family because that's all there is there at the beginning isn't there that one family and as one brother kills another and when challenged by god i know where he is am i my brother's keeper and the answer is yes you are that's how god sees it and as that sin spreads through those first few chapters of genesis affecting really every area of society we see family again and again getting affected by sin Throughout the story of the Bible, I mean, some of David's own family, some of his kids, the relationships between them, where one didn't think twice about killing another if he thought he'd done the wrong thing. Just being family in name in itself is no guarantee we will act right. I I'm sure many of us will have had times when someone's done something, someone in our family's done something, and you know, we've really reacted badly to it. And at that point, our sense of indignation and self-righteousness and self-rightness uh, has got bigger than the family ties at that time. So I think it's not difficult for us to see how this happens. And of course, with each passing generation, things get reinforced, don't they? A until the point comes where actually people have forgotten really what it was that sparked off this dispute in the first place. And all they remember is all the stuff that's been built on top of it. And that's clearly what had happened here over hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and had never been dealt with. And therefore, what were the repercussions of their bad attitude? Oh, their bad attitude... Obadiah said, is that, you know, judgment is definitely coming. The day of the Lord, their day of the Lord is definitely coming. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. So undoubtedly, judgment will come for them. I mean, ultimately, in terms of history, 
uh, after Babylon conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC, many of the Edomites actually migrated to southern Judah. I think from their point of view, they thought, well, oh, come on, let's go and take their land because it was good land around there. Certainly good for keeping sheep and things like that. But then they themselves would be conquered. Edom would be conquered in the 3rd century BC by a people group called the Nabataeans. And so they uh, migrate, many of them, to Judah to take up the place of those who had been exiled. But of course, they would never be accepted. Uh, they would always be resented when the Jews came back out of exile into the promised land. And they would actually become known by New Testament times as the Idumeans. You can see the link Edom, Idumea, very, very similar, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And who was one of the most famous Idumeans in the New Testament? It was King Herod, the guy who Rome appointed as the ruler of Israel, the king of Israel, and whom Israel rejected because he wasn't a Jew. He was only half Jew at best, and of course becomes a terrible ruler, a despot. Called himself Herod the Great. Yeah, very modest guy, wasn't he? But it's, it's like interesting, just going forward in the story, the tension between the Edomites and God's true people just continues. It stretches to the past for hundreds of years. It stretches to the future for hundreds of years as well, which is probably a challenge in itself to say to us, you know, if you've got disputes in your family. It's just not worth holding on to them, no matter what the issue was, no matter how right you think you were. You know, not dealing with it always leads to trouble in the long run and it only ever gets worse and never gets better you said at the beginning when we said we'd be looking at these two books obadiah and jonah that jonah also was a prophet who had a message for another nation yeah and he really didn't want to take this message to that nation at all so um this takes us to the book of jonah Jonah was uh, from the north. He lived uh, in a little place called Gathhefa, which was a couple of miles northeast of Nazareth in the old tribal district of Zebulun, which put him in a sort of central Galilee area. And of course, that would be the very first place that would get attacked if the Assyrians came. Now, just to set a bit of sort of historical background for him, Jonah lived during the reign of a king that we've mentioned several times as we've been looking at books on this particular bookshelf, the reign of Jeroboam II, who reigned 793 to 753 BC. And that was a time when he was able to expand the nation of Israel in terms of its territory, made possible by Assyria's defeat of Damascus, Syria to the, the north. And so that lifted some of the pressure that had been on Israel from Syria for a little while. So he was able to think, whoa, here we go. Stretch my muscles, stretch the territory. Became a time of great wealth, great affluence. Israel became very proud and prosperous with it, a time of spiritual complacency and drifting from God, as we've noted before. But Assyria is on your doorstep. 
Assyria is just now beyond your borders, having conquered Aram, Syria. And so Jonah is very aware of the power and might of Assyria. So when God says to Jonah that he wants him to go with a message calling them to repent, that is the last thing that Jonah wanted. He did not want these people to repent. He wanted them judging and wiping out because he knew they were an enemy at the doorstep. Just in passing, I think there's a challenge to us there. You know, when we look at people perhaps who are what we think is particularly sinful or bad, you know, what's in our hearts is our heart to see, oh God, that you would change them and cause them to repent. Or is it, oh God, that you would come and destroy these wicked people? Well, Jonah was in the latter category. He had no time for the Assyrians. He saw them simply as a threat. He did not want to go and take to them God's message that they could repent and change, which is why when God gives him that challenge, of course, in the story, he runs in completely the opposite direction. So the story, which is quite well known, Jonah and the so-called whale, is, is actually not so much a story... A prophecy. It's in the. It's one of the books of the prophets. Yes, and, and probably for two reasons. One is because obviously Jonah has prophetic words that he delivers to the nation of Assyria and to the city of Nineveh, its capital in particular. But also because the whole story is prophetic. It, it, it is a message of what is on the heart of God. That God does not want any sinner to perish but he wants them to find him and be saved. So the very the whole message itself is a prophecy. Just remind us of the headlines. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to them my word. Jonah says, no, I'm going to go in the opposite direction, goes and finds himself a sheep and heads for the opposite end of the known world in those days, Tarshish, a place in Spain. This really was the opposite ends of the universe, as it were, in what they knew at the time. And he must have been desperate because we know that Israelites really didn't like going on boats. They, they were a, a land people, not a sea people. So he runs from God. Anything rather than give these Assyrians the opportunity to repent. So he heads off in the opposite direction in chapter one. God loves people enough to get hold of Jonah and so sends a, a great storm that the ship gets caught up in. The, the sailors eventually call him and say, come on, call on your God. You know, we've got to get out of this terrible storm we are in. Who are you anyway? Which country are you from? What people are you from? And he goes all religious on them in verse nine of chapter one and says, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the land, I imagine him saying. And I think, oh, come on, man. Are you just running away from the God of the heavens and think you can run to the other end of the universe and escape? Hmm. And so they challenge him and saying, you know, what have you done? And it just seems to be getting worse. And eventually he says to them, well, look, the only way for you to escape from this storm is for you to cast me into the sea. And at first, they don't want to do that. But eventually, they feel they've got no choice. They throw him into the sea. But chapter one ends with these words. But the Lord 
provided a great fish to swallow Jonah. Yeah, it doesn't say a whale, does it? It's just a great fish. Mm. And Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. Chapter two, you know, there's not a lot to do inside a great fish uh, other than think and pray, which is exactly what he does. And there inside the great fish, he calls out to God in prayer, a prayer that ends with these words, salvation comes from the Lord. And at that moment, God says, you've got it, Jonah, though, of course, that sentence was bigger than he thought, and it would come to revisit him. And at that moment, the fish vomits him onto dry land. And in chapter three, the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. Oh, don't you love it that God is the God of the second time and the third time and the fourth time. So gracious with us. Sends him to go to Nineveh again. He says, OK, I hope you've learned your lesson now. Go and preach to Nineveh. He goes, he starts preaching, saying 40 more days and Nineveh's going to be overturned. And guess what? They repent. In fact, even the king himself repents and calls on his people to seek God in sackcloth and ashes. And chapter three ends with the words, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion on them. And he didn't bring upon them the destruction that he threatened. Why? Because he didn't want to destroy them. That was the warning, but it's not what he wanted. He wanted them to turn to him and know him. And really the story should have ended up there, shouldn't it? You know, and we all lived happily ever after and the Assyrians came to know mm. the living God. But chapter four finds Jonah greatly displeased and angry. And he says to God, there you go. Didn't I tell you that was what was going to happen? That's why I ran in the opposite direction, because I knew that if you sent me to preach to them, they would respond, they'd get set, and I knew that would happen because I know you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. You would think those words would have sort of started to stick in his throat <laughs> a little bit, wouldn't you? And then he has a pity party. And he says, oh, God, just take my life away now. It's better for me to die than to live. And God says, have you got any right to be angry? And, and works out this little parable for him because Jonah goes out and sits down for the night, finds some shelter under a tree, but God causes the sun to rise up and that tree withers overnight. And Jonah gets really angry about that. Oh, look at that. Not even got any shade now to hide underneath. And God says, whoa, whoa, whoa. hang on. Have you got any right to be angry about that vine tree that grew up Jonah? He says, I do. I'm, I'm angry enough to die. And then God turns it with an open-ended question and says, you've been concerned for a vine that died? Do you not think I might be concerned for a whole city that would die without me? And the story is left open-ended, a bit like some of those parables of Jesus, where the answer is blindingly obvious. Of course it is, Lord. So there's a contrast between Jonah's interpretation of justice and mercy and God's. Isn't that interesting? Because he, he does say there, 
quoting this phrase that occurs again and again. It first comes out in Exodus 34, where God reveals his nature and character to Moses on Mount Sinai, where he appears before him and says, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and mercy, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And that phrase we find again and again through the Old Testament, and Jonah picks it up. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. But he wanted God to be like that on his terms. It's like, oh, I know you like that, God, but but not to not to Assyrians, please. I want you to be like that to me and my family and my kind and my nation and my sort of people. Not them, not that lot. And no, there's a challenge in that for us today still as Christians and in our churches. Do we really believe that God's a gracious and compassionate God who wants to see all kinds of people saved? Even the sort of people that aren't in our churches at the moment and whom we might feel frankly a little bit uncomfortable with because they come from a different background or social class to us. Or It's a real challenge to... On what terms do we want God's grace and favour to be known? Ours or his? And what's exposed in this story is that Jonah wanted God to be God, but on his terms, not God's terms. The fact that the book of Jonah does end it in such an open-ended way, does that concern you? No, I don't think so at all, because that's the point of it, that we're meant to draw the conclusion from it as self. And the conclusion is so blindingly obvious that really you can't go anywhere else with it. I mean, in some ways it, it ends very abruptly, doesn't it? As, you know, don't I have the right to have compassion on this city? Should I not be concerned about that great city? Question mark. And you sort of, you want to turn the page and think, where's the next bit, you know? Did, did we miss a bit out? Did some of the scroll get lost? But no, it didn't. It, it ended up because the answer is so blindingly obvious. But actually, there is only one person who can give the answer to that, and that's you, the reader of the story. And I think it, it's deliberately crafted in this way to cause each one of us to come face to face with an answer to this question. How much do we really think God is gracious and compassionate? We want him to be gracious and compassionate to our people, our family, nice people, similar people to us. We might even stretch to we want him to be gracious and compassionate to other people as long as perhaps they went to a different church and not mine. But, you know, the constant message of Scripture is that God's grace and compassion is shown to all people, men and women, whatever their colour, whatever their background, whatever they've been, wherever they come from. There at the end in Revelation, we see a picture of people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation gathered around him around the throne. And that's what he wants to start seeing now here on earth in our churches. So this open-ended question is a great place to end it because it challenges each one of us to think how gracious and compassionate do you really want God 
to be. Because the story of Jonah and the so-called whale is so well known, there's, I suppose, the possibility that some people might think it's just a storybook for children. Yes, uh, clearly uh, Jonah himself was a historical figure. There's no doubt about that at all. In fact, there's a verse in, in 2 Kings chapter 14 that tells us that Jeroboam II restored the boundaries of Israel in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through the prophet Jonah, the son of Amittai. So this guy. Mm. So there is no doubt that this Jonah was a historical figure. So it's not just a fairy story. Now, the, the truth is, and I always like to try and be big-hearted here and say people take this in different ways. Some would see this as a literal story that really happened to that literal figure, and I see no reason why, because God is so great, why this should not have happened exactly as it is. Others see it as a story that was either written by or about Jonah, a sort of parable, as we might say, just as Jesus told parables. Is he deceiving us in telling us a parable? No, the parable was told to communicate a truth. So Christians do interpret this in slightly different ways. But what is clear, it is absolutely not meant to be a fairy story. You know, it, it is about a real historical person in a real historical setting who had to come face to face with the question, how big is your God? And that's still a question for each of us today, isn't it? How big is your God? And how big and how far do you want his grace to stretch to others? Mike Bowman has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, check out the website at ucb.co.uk.